Would you all pray with me? Your glory and power, O God, surround us here in this place this morning. We lift up our hands and we call upon your name. We are your people. We are thirsty for the living water that only you can provide. When we consider how you have helped us, giving us a spring that gushes up to eternal life, we cling to you. We sing songs of praise about you. And we do this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we have spent time outside of the Gospels. But it doesn't mean that we have strayed away from the Gospel. You know, the beauty of our Bible and our scriptures and really the entirety of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is that we can't get away from the Gospel. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, points to God's coming glory, a covenant that had been made with uh, Abram. We talked about Abram a few, or last week, Pastor Ed did, and then we move through the Gospels, and then we have our epistles, and looking to the fullness of Christ's ministry, and, and how that was figured out. How do we live into this new calling as a community? And we see the ancient church work its way through that process. So the, while the Gospels are a familiar place that we often like to default to, those are the stories that we're most familiar with, those are the stories we are more likely to recall to our children. The beauty of our scripture is that the Gospel itself is woven throughout the entire Bible. So this morning we find ourselves in the midst of the parables, stories by Jesus, used, utilizing common objects and familiar people to explain what God's reign looked like in the present during his ministry and also looking forward to what the full realization of the kingdom of God would look like. So beginning in our reading this morning in chapter 13 and then continuing for four more chapters, the gospel of Luke is littered with stories like the parable of the fig tree. So Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. And as he's making his way towards Jerusalem, he's continuing to minister. And he's continuing to point to the coming glory of God. All of Christ's teachings and all of the healings that he performed pointed to one thing. The kingdom of God. So as Jesus turns and he faces Jerusalem... We will arrive in Jerusalem with him in four weeks. We'll be waving palms and we'll be shouting Hosanna. So as he's headed towards Jerusalem, he's told of the mixing of blood in the temple. And then we, talk, we hear him talk about the death of 18 people from a tower that collapses. But before we can move forward to see what this story is about, we have to go back just a few verses and see what happened in the scene prior. Because prior to Jesus talking about mixing blood and falling towers and fig trees, Jesus had been talking about settling disputes with one's opponent. Here's what he said. When you go with your accuser before the magistrate on the way to make an effort to settle the case or... You may be dragged before the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus was talking about 
amending for wrongdoings that were done against an opponent. He wasn't talking about hypotheticals. He was talking to a group of people and telling them that when they wrong someone, this is how you make it right. So after he was finished teaching on that matter, we then moved to the question of blood and falling towers and fig trees. You know, it's almost as though those who had just been hearing, who had just been listening to Jesus talk about correcting their own sins in their lives. It's like they needed to deflect attention for a moment. It's like they began to feel uncomfortable knowing that perhaps, just perhaps, they had missed the mark of God's law. It's like they were asking the question, but didn't that group get what they deserved? Jesus. It's obvious, isn't it? That those people, those people died because of what they did. If you have kids, or if you've ever like, cared for more than one child, you've experienced perhaps a similar situation. You catch one child in the act of breaking a rule or doing something wrong to someone else, and instead of, instead of accepting responsibility for what they just did, because after all, they're children, the child will deflect attention from themselves towards something that someone else is doing. Yeah, I might have done that, but they did something way worse than I did. At least in my mind, I think it's way worse. But the problem is that that, that behavior doesn't end with childhood. When we move into adulthood, we do the exact same thing. But guess what? It's on a whole other level. Paul, we like to blame politicians and look at them as examples of this. But Christians, guess what, folks? We do this better than anyone else on the planet. We will see an entire group of people and declare that their sins, what they are doing, or what we perceive to be sin, we will say that that is greater than any sins that we may have committed in the past week, the past day, or the past 15 minutes. They, not us, not me, they need to correct what they're doing. How many of you have ever been told, you ain't living right? You got to start living for the Lord by someone you know to be a sinner as well. And I would be willing to imagine, I would say bet, but I'm a United Methodist and we're not allowed to gamble. So I would be willing to imagine that some of us in this room have used a similar phrase to someone we care about. We'll be saying it to someone we love because we love them. We'll tell them, you ain't living right. You need to get right with the Lord. Meanwhile, our own sin continues to go either unchecked or worse, unacknowledged. So back to the original question that Jesus dodged in our scripture reading this morning. Did those groups of people perish because of their sin? Can we make sense of complicated and unclear matters by examining the actions of those who have died? The real question being asked, did God kill those people? Did God deal out punishment for sin? Those are tough and complicated questions. Because after all, we can look to the Hebrew Bible and we can see that God did, at least we read that God did strike down the unjust or those who stood in opposition to Israel. But on 
we can turn the pages to a few more different books and see in the, in the ministry of Christ, there is healing and there is mercy where there had once been suffering and exclusion. So to the question that Jesus will dodge, I'm inclined to agree with the Archbishop Michael Curry. If God were to deal out punishment, judgment and curse, in relation to sin, there'd be no one left on the planet. All sin, all of it is against the will of God. All sin is incompatible with God's command to love one another and to love God. Yeah, Jesus dodges the question. But up until that point, and then from that point forward, all the way to the cross, he will be teaching and exhibiting acts of healing and mercy. We call that grace. He was doing this since he picked up the scroll in his hometown synagogue and declared that the scriptures had been fulfilled. Since the manger, Christ's life had been pointing to the healing and mercy of his inbreaking kingdom. Where we expect, and where at times we demand judgment and, and curse, the kingdom of God offers us something quite different. The kingdom of God is different from Pilate's kingdom. The kingdom of God is different from Rome. And my friends, I have to tell you that we live in Rome. Pilate and Caesar ruled by muscle and fear, while God's kingdom is ruled with grace. Those listening to Jesus' teachings wanted to talk about the sins of others. And instead, Jesus offered them the opportunity to repent of their own sins and to reorient themselves towards the kingdom that he had come to make, be made known and to be made fully realized. At its most basic level, repentance changes the way that we behave. It changes the way that we view the world. And if you don't believe me, you can ask our confirmants because that's all we've talked about this morning. They can tell you all about it. Ask them what metanoia means. They would love to talk to you about it. Instead of our own perception, we begin to see the world as Christ does. We want to focus on sin and judgment, but Jesus invites us to view the world differently. Jesus had during his ministry, and he continues to have today, a view of the world that's within his kingdom. And with that comes the invitation to each of us to repent, to accept the citizenship in his kingdom that is extended to each of us even though we're also citizens of Rome. When I was in St. Louis a few weeks ago, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church was there. Anybody ever heard of these, these, these folks? They were there every morning and every evening, and they, were, they greeted us as we exited our car and entered into the Dome at the American Center. And then, nice enough, they were there when we exited to offer well wishes and greetings as we uh, moved to their cars. I was going to bring pictures of some of the signs they had, but none of them were actually appropriate uh, to show during worship. But their least offensive sign offered an invitation to repentance. The problem, the problem with their invitation to repentance is the invitation isn't theirs to make. 
The kingdom of God doesn't belong to any of us. It belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. And it is Christ's grace that invites us to change the orientation of our lives. Even if it takes more time than folks say it should. It's an invitation to enter into the grace of God to have our lives completely transformed. For Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, the entirety of his ministry, the kingdom of God is always at the forefront. When Jesus is healing and when he is teaching, he is proclaiming the reign of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is priority number one for Christ. When we accept Christ's invitation to repent, we are intentionally turning away from our own sinfulness and turning towards the kingdom. It doesn't mean we're leaving our sin behind because we're going to sin over and over and we need that grace that is continually extended to us. But in this turn, in this changing of orientation in our lives, we begin to see, experience, and become part of the healing, liberation, and compassion Extended to all people, all people throughout creation by God through Christ. The good news is that in five weeks, through the emptiness of his grave, we will see healing, liberation, and compassion. The healing, liberation, and compassion of God in its fullest. In the empty tomb, we will find the extravagant grace of the gardener, God Almighty as the healing grace of Christ is extended to us, regardless of our, of our ability or our willingness to repent with all of our hearts. Thanks be to God. Amen.